It is another edition of Crossing Broad FC. Welcome on in. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for listening to us. Hoping that you're having a great evening, great morning, great afternoon, great whatever time you are listening to this episode. I am Russell Joy at Joy on Broad. Joined as always by Phil Kaidel. You can find him on Twitter at Phil Kaidel. Phil, uh, we've got a, a five star a five star iTunes review that's going to be coming later in the episode. I know that's something that people are going to really hang around for. It's riveting, riveting pod stuff, but. Domestic leagues have kind of wrapped up. We know what our Champions League final is going to be. We kind of started to riff on that last episode. But a lot of stuff going on, including uh, some really interesting transfer rumors that are out there that I, I want to get your opinion on. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Russell. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Um, I know that some of our listeners might have wondered where we were Friday, Saturday, whatsoever. Look, the decision was very easy. Premier League wrapped up this past weekend. Serie A, more or less, wrapped up this past weekend. La Liga has been dead for a while. Uh, it was a, a better product for our listeners uh, to do this now rather than talking about matches that were about to happen, but the leagues were almost all finished. This is a much better way to go. Certainly is. Uh, I guess I this is the point in the show where I should congratulate you on uh, being a City fan and seeing City secure 100 points in the EPL, which we'll get to a little bit later, but uh, go ahead and take your victor's lap now that uh, your team came out victorious in this league and a very impressive season, uh, absolutely, for Manchester City. Well, it's one of those things, too. They they score the goal that gets them the 100 points. Gabriel Jesus scores the goal in extra time in a match that now the team really needed. And obviously, if Jesus doesn't score that goal and they don't get to 100 points and they only get 98 points out of the season, it wouldn't make a meaningful difference. But it was pretty strange to watch... Jesus score, and then the entire team surround him, and they're jumping up up and down, and Jesus takes his jersey off and gets carded, and Guardiola is hugging everybody he can find on the touchline. This mattered to them. I don't know why, but I guess Guardiola instilled in them an intent and a desire to post this 100-point marker and make this season memorable because, look, they didn't go through it undefeated, uh, and this was the best that they were going to be able to do. They, they scored as many goals, more goals than any Premier League team ever had before, and they posted 100 points. You can't do a lot better than that. Speaking of uh, teams that didn't go undefeated this season, uh, how about Barcelona ending their uh, their very successful uh, La Liga campaign to this point? Uh, they had been undefeated in league play, even going back to a few games in the last season. They, uh, they lost 5-4 away to Levante, and that was... Um, I don't know. That wasn't something that I was really looking all that that much forward to. Um, you know, I, obviously as a Real fan, um, it's not like I don't care at all about Barcelona. It's just that you know, whether or not they go undefeated in the league doesn't really matter. Especially kind of c- coming off of uh, last weekend's El Clasico, where you know I thought that was a very interesting matchup, um, and I think we're starting to kind of see the way that Gareth Bale is going to potentially go next level and and kind of create a, a new dynamic or. I guess it's a little bit of an old dynamic that they're kind of bringing back to the forefront here as they get ready for the Champions League final showdown. Uh, Bale's been playing a lot better, and and in that Clasico match, um, you know, we ended in a 2-2 draw, and it's it was an exciting match all the way around. But 
um, you know, before we get to that, I guess, you know, the fact that Barcelona ended up kind of losing this this unbeaten season, I don't know how much that matters to the players. I mean, I'm sure that this deep into a season, you can see that on the horizon and, and maybe it means something to you, at, at least in a, a you know, uh, in a competitor sense. But um, it certainly doesn't bring any kind of um, intrigue to the league necessarily. It doesn't change anything at the top of the table. They obviously had run away with La Liga to that point. Um, I don't know. If, if you're a player, do you really care all that much about having the undefeated season? Does it really take anything away from this team? What do you think? Well, I think it proved that it didn't really matter to Barcelona because I don't see Lionel Messi out there. Now, whether he's been nursing an injury for a long while or whether they just figured they could beat Levante without him, look, they went out there with Suarez and Coutinho and Dembele. These are great players, but Messi wasn't even on the bench for this match. And what you saw is when Messi doesn't play for Barcelona, they're really very good still, but they're not at the top of their ability level. And there's only one way for a club like Levante to open up a 5-1 lead against Barcelona, which is what happened in this match. At one point, Levante was up four goals, and then Barcelona clawed it back some. They just couldn't quite get the draw they needed. The only way Levante is going to do that to Barcelona is if Messi's not out there patrolling the midfield and drawing an awful lot of attention from two and three midfielders at a time and probably a defender. That's what happened in this match. Without Messi, they're a good club, maybe even a great club on their day, but they are not world-class because without him, I mean, how do you replace him? You can't. Yeah, so it, it would appear that the manager decided to uh, to hold him out of this matchup, potentially to play him uh, in their final matchup against Real Sociedad. Um, I, I guess they kind of assumed that they were going to win this match. Um, the streak ends at 43 games unbeaten, 36 of which came this season uh, in league play. It's, um, I don't know, I, I guess it's a little bit of a, of a tricky call there if you're the manager because you, you kind of want to also, you know, to some extent preserve Messi knowing that a World Cup is coming up. And I know that doesn't really do much for his job or anything to do with, with Barcelona necessarily, but it does a lot of good for the Barcelona brand for Messi to kind of elevate the Argentine national team to another level in the World Cup. It, it continues to bring more eyes to La Liga. So to some extent, I understand not wanting to run him into the ground. I understand if the player wanted to be held out of this match. And and certainly they should have expected that they could have you know, won this game without him. Um, it's a shame for them to, I guess, have lost this unbeaten season. But, um, you know, like we were saying before, the league was never in question. It really was a meaningless game unless you were really hanging your hat on on an undefeated season. So, um, you know, I, I guess it's kind of the the ultimate catch-22 if you're the manager. I mean, if, if you run him out there and he gets hurt, if he catches a, a knock, if he uh, and you go on to lose the game, and then you've got Sociedad next week, which week, which doesn't matter. Um, you end up going into a World Cup cycle where, you know, are, were you the selfish manager? Were you the team that mismanaged, you know, the greatest player in the world, arguably, um, and cost him, you know, a World Cup run here, a World Cup run, which by the way, four years ago he said he would not make again. So, I don't know. I guess a lot, a lot goes into these decisions. Let's draw the quick contrast then, though, with Manchester City playing a match that didn't really matter. And the again, the difference between 98 points and 100 points is really meaningless to just about anybody outside the club. Guardiola started De Bruyne. He started Zane. Sterling played. Fernandinho played. That was a really strong City side that went out there and pretty much fiddled around for 94 minutes until Jesus scored and Jesus played. So we can say all we want that uh, 
Barcelona's manager is uh, choosing discretion as the better part of valor by not running Messi into the ground against Levante. But Guardiola wasn't caring about that in this last match. Now, maybe, obviously, with Barcelona uh, still with uh, football to play and, and you know one more match to go, maybe that's what the manager would say. Well, we get through Levante and I'll deploy him in this last match to get the streak finished. I don't know, man. That's a risky game he played and he lost. Yeah, agreed. Um, I guess let's uh, let's move on a little bit. So I, I don't know how much you want to get into El Clasico. I, I know that like we, in our minds we had kind of rationalized why we uh, took a few extra days, but we you know we didn't really get to break down El Clasico at all. Um, some interesting things happened within that match. Um, Bale Bale being a guy like I was saying before that's kind of looked like he started to find his form. Um, certainly is going to. I would think play a large role in the Champions League final as it comes up. But um, Real Madrid gets two goals in the match from Ronaldo, one from Ronaldo, one from Bale. Uh, Suarez and Messi both score for Barcelona. An exciting match. I mean, I don't know how how much people put into El Clasico, especially at this point in the season when the league is out of hand uh, or is you know out of reach for a team like uh, Real Madrid or even Atletico to, to some extent. Um, I look at this matchup the same way practically every time. It's it's you know biggest rivalry in La Liga, one of the biggest rivalries in all of European football. So um, you know I, I think the guys still get up for it. It's very clear the play was very chippy at points in the match. Um, Sergio Roberto caught a red, right? If I remember correctly, he I'm did. Trying to, I'm trying to think of uh, of two weeks ago, but yeah, uh, Roberto took a stupid red. Um, what was the what was the the tackle that was missed? There was a um, was it a tackle against Umtiti that, that yeah that was that Bale. wasn't that wasn't called yeah that's right first half right I think um, yeah he studded Bale, him yeah Bale studded him on a ball going out of bounds call wasn't made Roberto ends up kind of turning around at at a point a little bit later in the match and and catches a red and um, it doesn't really change the complexion of the game all that much but there were uh, two or three points where Bale might have been carded he finally was carded in like the 78th minute after he had scored but there were plenty of Barcelona supporters who were thinking if Roberto had to go. Bale should have been gone too. It should have been 10v10 by the time Bale scored. So I agree with you. Um, this match was a lot more exciting and interesting than anybody thought. There were discussions before the match started that this would be a quote-unquote decaffeinated Classico because there wasn't much riding on it. But instead, you had plenty of cards issued, including a red. I mentioned uh, before we went on the air, this was like if two really good FIFA 18 players took each other on, you got goals from Suarez and Messi and Ronaldo and Bale. You got a red card. The The stars were shining. And I would argue that because this match didn't have the import that it often does for the league title, it almost freed the sides to play more aggressively uh, with less concern about making the mistake that could haunt their club and their season goals, et cetera, and so forth. All that stuff was already decided, so they could just go out and play. And I wish we could see more uh, Classicos like this one where they're not so worried about screwing up because when they really let it fly, it's electric. Yeah, I, I agree. And there were moments where, uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, like Suarez got into it with uh, Ramos. Um, Casemiro and Marcelo had to kind of split them up. Um, possession was almost dead even. Barcelona won possession 51% to 49%. Shots on target were pretty much the same. Uh, Real had more shots on, on goal. Um, 20 fouls for Real Madrid. 
I mean, if you want to talk about a match where it kind of felt like it was starting to get a little bit out of control, a little bit too chippy, and kind of to your point about how Bale probably should have been carded multiple times, um, Real end up with five yellows in the match, Barcelona with three and a red card. But 20 fouls really stands out. More than doubled up what, what Barca did. Corners were practically even, um, just to kind of run you down the uh, the normal stats here. But um, I, I guess a few things. Every defender, every defender for Real Madrid ended up with a yellow card in the match, which, uh, I don't know, that kind of strikes me as uh, a, a little bit surprising. And um, Well, and what are know, the odds it, that they all committed the exact type of foul that gets them yellow carded but not sent off, right? Like, yeah, exactly. What are the odds? Um, I don't know. I guess as I look at it, you know, kind of to a question that you had asked before, how do you replace a guy like Messi, especially if, if he's not playing in a match like this? Um, it kind of comes to one of the transfer rumors that, that's been going around, one that I'm, I'm very excited about. Um, and, and that's the idea that Antoine Griezmann could potentially make a move from Atletico. And if, if we're looking at a guy that can... Uh, you know, bolster that Barcelona attack that already is is deadly, is potent. Um, that to me could be a fantastic signing for Barca. It gives the the opportunity to maybe switch up the formation a little bit, have Messi kind of drop back into that that uh, cam role, uh, kind of replace a little bit of that production that you would get from Iniesta in the midfield, allow Messi to roam around in open space, and then if you're pairing Griezmann and Suarez up top, I mean, that is. That is a lethal combination that I, I don't know if many teams in Europe could possibly even hope to stop. I don't know what your thoughts on that kind of a change would be. I mean, obviously, Iniesta played his last Clasico. He said he will not play anywhere else in uh, in Europe, in Spain especially. Um, I would assume that he's likely going to make a move to a uh, Chinese team. Um, I'm sure that there is going to be a lucrative deal sitting out there for them for him. So uh, I guess what was it? It was Javi a few years ago, right? That that went off to uh, to China, signed a massive deal. Would not be surprised to see it happen with Iniesta. But um, I don't know. There's you- stuff that I'll argue with you about for the sake of argument. Sometimes if this is not going to be one of them, Griezmann would fit great at Barcelona. I think he'd step right in and be a very important contributor. Uh, I would rather talk a little bit more about Gareth Bale if you don't mind. Sure. So I think for you as a Madrid supporter. You have to love what you've seen from Gareth Bale in the last few weeks. This guy was largely forgotten and not totally written off, but there were concerns about injury and there were concerns about form. And I would think a month ago if you had said to me, oh, Bale's going to factor in this Champions League final, I'd been like, really? He's not doing much in the domestic league and he hasn't really made much of a splash in their Champions League uh, knockout matches either from what I've seen. But I agree with you. His play in the last week or two. I mean, it's almost like in baseball, momentum is the next day's starting pitcher. Well, with Gareth Bale, his talent is such that if he flashes a little bit of form in the few weeks before a Champions League final, you have to consider maybe not starting him, but certainly planning on having him play 45 minutes or whatsoever. And on a bigger picture for Madrid, and again, with you supporting them the way you do, you have to hope that he can patch together one or two healthy years and continue the way he's played right now into those next couple of years as Ronaldo starts to continue to get toward that sunset because Bale would be a very hard player to move for Madrid. There have been transfer rumors about him and the possibility of going back to the Premier League and whatnot, but Madrid can't afford to like sell him at a discount. That's not going to happen. So 
you may be stuck with him, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but you might need, if you're Real Madrid, you may need to try and derive as much value out of him in the next year or two that you can in order to save face on what you spent for him. So I'm going to kind of put this out here. I guess this is uh, this is the part where I, I mess up our script a little bit, but that's part of what I, I like about the other transfer rumor that was, that's been really big since uh, the, the last transfer went down. Um, and I guess it kind of speaks to this point a little bit. I've never been in the camp of, of selling bail because I, I just don't think that any kind of value you're going to get back from is going to, you know, remotely be worth it. So like, what, what are you looking at at this, at this point? You're looking at a player that certainly hasn't lived up to the massive transfer fee, but he provides this ridiculously, you know, useful dynamic and, and a kind of a game breaker speed, game breaker talent. And if, if you need any evidence, uh, simply look back to the Celta Vigo game uh, from this past weekend. Bale scores the first two goals. The second goal is classic Gareth Bale. I mean, it's it's a goal that uh, my wife a lot of times will sit down and watch soccer with me because she thinks the men are attractive. Um, my masculinity can still hold up to that. I'm okay. But um, for now, the <laughs> yeah, the uh, the goal that, that Bale scored, the second goal, where he practically goes down to the touchline, plays the ball back with his, the outside of his left foot, cuts back leaves the defender with his momentum going, you know, out of bounds over the goal line and then rips a shot far post back of the net. That's the kind of skill that, you know, for as often as Bale is injured for, you know, the the people that say the best quality uh, of a player is to be available. Like, I, I get that there's something to be said for that. I know that you can't contribute if you are injured. Uh, you really can't help whether or not the guy is injured. But... When you look at that kind of raw skill, when you look at the polished finishes that that he has, and you start to think long term how you're going to replace Cristiano Ronaldo as he begins to that that downward descent of his career, Bale has to play some kind of role in that. And if, as I as I look forward, I kind of think about you know Bale is going to continue to be a guy who's going to play out on one of the flanks, and we've we've said that Ronaldo probably should transition to being the Benzema replacement up top. And that kind of leads me to this transfer rumor of Neymar. And I know that Real Madrid is is often in talks or is in the transfer you know headlines about practically every player. But ever since Neymar left Barcelona, there's been that rumor floating out there that Real Madrid was still upset that they weren't able to convince him to sign with them uh, you know, back when Neymar made the initial move to Barcelona. And there has always been this thought in the back of of a lot of people's mind, I know at least in the back of my mind, that the PSG move was just a one-year move. And the whole idea here was Barcelona would never sell to their rival. But if Neymar could go to France, win a league, maybe get PSG over the hump, perhaps challenge for a Champions League title, and then make the move to Real Madrid, you know, less than two years removed from from leaving the Barcelona uh, side with with, uh, Lionel Messi and and Luis Suarez, I always thought that it would be a, a possible um, endeavor here. And I, I kind of think it makes a lot of sense for the player, for the club. You want to talk about a guy that's going to be able to usher in the next generation at, at Real Madrid and, and, you know, kind of cement himself as one of the, the all-time greats. Neymar ain't going to do that at, a, at PSG, man. Like, the idea that he's going to stay there long-term is laughable at best. He apparently doesn't like living in Paris. Ligue 1 is a runaway league. It is not a league that is obviously looked at in the same kind of class or caliber as an EPL or even a La Liga. Why would you not look to make that move to Real Madrid? I suppose there's nothing to lose for Neymar. 
I would argue that Real Madrid are taking a bit of a risk. Uh, two years ago, when Neymar was still with Barcelona and seemingly scoring at will and out there with Messi and Suarez and it looked so easy, I could understand Barcelona, Barcelona saying there's no way we sell to Real Madrid. And now you've told me that maybe this was concocted from the jump, that he would leave Barcelona and go to PSG and just use it as a way station to get to Real Madrid. Well, the problem is, I feel like in the last two years, if anything, Neymar's value has declined and his reputation as an elite player, he's not in the conversation now with Messi and Ronaldo. Mo Salah is, for my money. Now, that's not to say that Neymar can't find it again playing for Real Madrid, but there's probably more risk for Real Madrid in that sort of transfer than you might think, and certainly more risk than there was even a year ago. No, I, I guess so. I mean, I know that his image has taken a massive hit, and this certainly won't do anything to help it. But in terms of kind of rehabilitating the the player on the field, um, I, I don't see a better option for him. I mean, I know that there are some people that think that there's a possibility that Barcelona is going to try to buy him back. I don't see how that could work. I don't see how that would be something that his team would be too, or that team would be too thrilled about. I would have to think that players in the locker room who felt kind of scorned by him leaving in the first place would necessarily want to welcome him back with open arms. So at that point, like, what are you looking at? I mean, you've, you've got to look for a team that's got deep pockets. Well, he happens to play on a team that, you know, might have the deepest pockets of any team in Europe. So then what do you look at next? You've got Real Madrid and you've got some teams in the EPL. Certainly no Serie A club is going to take him. And I, I would argue that Serie A would be more or less a lateral move uh, from Ligue 1. So, like, what are your options? One of the Manchester clubs, are they really going to go out and try to drop a world a world record fee to bring Neymar in? I don't know. I mean, I, I guess if you were uh, Jose Mourinho and you're really uh, looking to find that dynamic score and somebody who can potentially almost single-handedly propel you past your uh, crosstown rival, then, then maybe you have to think about it. I don't know if Pep is going to you know want to go after him. And honestly, after a 100-point season... Why would you want to go after a guy like Neymar? I don't really see Klopp finding a need for him at Liverpool. So, like, his his options are limited. And, again, I kind of think this is where a team like Real being able to uh, uh, muscle their way in and drop copious amounts of cash on the table um, could could certainly be beneficial. I think Neymar like to misses Liga. What's that? Would you like to explain to me how Neymar and Ronaldo are going to play together? Yeah. What's that going to look like? Neymar's on one flank. I, I think that there it, I think it could work. I would say that Neymar would There's probably... still only one ball, Russ. Yeah. I mean, Neymar was able to play with, with uh, Messi and Suarez. They were able to get enough balls around. And I know that Ronaldo is a an often selfish player. He wants good service. He would get good service. And they would play well off each other. I think Ronaldo at some point, for as selfish as he comes off, as pompous and as arrogant as he comes off, I think there has to be at least a part of him that realizes that there is a human side to him. There is a time aspect to him. And that eventually he's going to have to start to defer a little bit. He's going to have to change the way he plays. And I certainly think that the way that he kind of lengthens his career to go cross sport here, it's like the similar way, similar way that I think LeBron James is going to kind of have to change his style in order to prolong his career, you have to acknowledge the fact that like there are going to be younger players that can do a lot of the the lifting of the load or carrying of the load um, offensively for your squad. And I think that moving Ronaldo up to you know playing in the uh, the center the center forward position makes a lot of sense. He allows Neymar and Bale to play off him uh, off on the wings and and provide service. Like I, I think it could work. Now, will their egos be able to? Uh, 
to coexist. That I don't know. But I would certainly think that if you're Ronaldo and you realize that you've had to carry this team for, you know, the last, what, six years longer, that, you know, as you kind of look forward, you know, imagine a world where you transfer away Bale. Well, who are you bringing in? You missed out on Kelly and Mbappe last year. They're, I don't I don't know if they're really going to want to make a play for like a Christian Pulisic, but Pulisic is certainly not at the level right now that a Neymar is or even an injured Gareth Bale is. So I don't know. I, I think for him, you kind of have to put some ego aside and try to get the best player available. And, and I would say that Neymar obviously is probably the biggest name and, and the best player available. Like we often forget how young he is and how, you know, he's he's a year or two removed from being you know, considered the best young player in the world. He's only 26, so. Well, great. Please make this happen because I can't wait for Neymar to go and do something colossally stupid or self-aggrandizing and then have Ronaldo react to it after the match. Like, I, that's classic get-your-popcorn-ready territory right there. That's where you get into El Clasico. Can you imagine? Okay, fast forward a year. We're sitting at uh, Real Madrid, Barcelona, top two, they're jockeying for position in La Liga. El Clasico comes late in the season. And now you've got Neymar, Bale, and Ronaldo against Griezmann, Suarez, and Messi. I mean, I know we that always have star caliber. Yeah, but I, I think this is a whole this match. is a whole other level because you've got Griezmann leaving uh one Madrid club to go join up with uh with Barca. So you've got that Madrid versus Madrid kind of thought. And now you've got Neymar, who, you know, was supposed to be the heir apparent to Lionel Messi of Barcelona, now playing for their arch nemesis, for their, you know, their exact rivals. I think the storylines going into it be fantastic. And I would imagine that if, if this game was chippy, I would have to assume that that one would go even next level. So it almost uh, seems you like you, you like talking about the potential transfers and the permutations more than you actually like watching them play. I mean, sometimes I think it's fair. Yeah. I, I like I like kind of playing this game out because if the leagues are going to be runaways, which we saw practically every domestic league was a runaway this year, then yeah, like my mind is going to start to kind of uh, wander. Well, that to, was Real Madrid's fault. Barcelona yeah, should was. not have run away with that league this year. They did. It's true. It's true. And again, I think that's why it's so important that Madrid makes a big move for another star that, you know, if you're able to rest Ronaldo here and there uh, in in the next campaign, like I think that's that's part of why this is worth it as well. So... You've got to you've got to be able to provide him some time off to stay fresh because I think at points in the season he's just looked worn down, um, which I think to some extent is why people were so surprised that he was able to rebound and kind of have this massive resurgence that he had in in the Champions League and scoring in practically every game up until the last two. So um, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Those are some transfer rumors that we uh, I guess have woven into here. Uh, we know that La Liga is out of reach. Serie A also out of reach. Juventus clinched their seventh straight Scudetto uh, with a nil-nil draw with Roma. Uh, Roma was down a man for over 30 minutes. And um, it, it's something I, I think if we were going to say the biggest disappointment in European football this year, it has to be the fact that Napoli was so close to, uh, to snatching the Scudetto away from, uh, from Juventus. And they blew it. They flat out blew it down the stretch and... I would consider this one of the biggest collapses I, I think I've ever seen in any sport. Uh, when they you... didn't just not get it done. They let Juventus clinch in match day 37. We're not even going to get the fun situation where the clubs are playing and if one result falls one way and one result falls the other, that uh, the title could change hands. We don't even get that out of Napoli. That's how bad that they have been the last two weeks. you got to give Juventus credit. They got the job done and got over the line. 
But as I indicated to you before we went on the air, Juventus wins this seventh straight title with a nil-nil draw against Roma. Roma's down a man for 30 minutes. If you want to know why I don't particularly like watching Serie A, this is my example of why. I think Juventus owed it to me and to you and to everybody else to pop two goals in on Roma and put this thing away emphatically. And instead, they just kind of dithered around and kicked it here and kicked it there and watched the clock fall away. And then they you know, ran around as the title holders, and that's terrific. But, man, I have a hard time watching that that style of football. And I think that title-winning match from Juventus is an example of why it can be very hard to put up with. Well, apparently other things that are hard to put up with are uh, on the side of Massimiliano Allegri. I don't know if you saw the uh, the post-match press conference. Well, I guess more of like an, an interview with the uh, studio analysts. And one of them mentioned that Allegri looked tired. And he got offended and kind of stormed off right after they had, uh, had won their match. So uh, that was the thing. That was exciting. Um, yeah, I, I think most of the... The biggest storylines that we've talked about with Juventus this year have uh, have come from off the field antics or things that happen on the field and then kind of uh, you know melted, blended on onto the uh, the after the post match uh, post match press conference or post match on uh, social media. So, well, when uh, fourth place in your league is Lazio and seventh place is Atalanta. We got to come up with some things to talk about. Yeah, and and um, I don't know what your thoughts on this are. And it's certainly, it's not something that we had kind of planned for. Maybe this is something that we'll talk about in a future episode. But I know there's been this idea thrown out on on Reddit. It's been thrown out in different uh, soccer circles about potentially just forming a a league that's very similar to what the Champions League ends up being. But essentially a European Super League, where a lot of these teams that are so top-heavy, um, you know, the top maybe two or three teams from Serie A and Ligue 1 kind of join in with a lot of the top EPL teams and uh, and La Liga teams, and they just form their own massive, you know, I don't know, 20-team league where it's it's the best of the best. And the domestic leagues kind of stay where they're at. They certainly lose out on having these, you know, big-name clubs with all the money. But I don't know, does that does that improve those leagues just by uh, by virtue of, of the leagues kind of being attainable again? I mean, are, are we ever going to see a, a Brighton, you know, go up and, and win the EPL. I know that the Leicester City example kind of sits out there, but, you know, I would point out that that's an anomaly. Do we think that a team like, um, 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 well, what the heck were they named? Uh, Crotane are going to, like, jump up and take the Serie A title? Do we think that Bordeaux is going to win League 1? So I, I don't know where your head's at on this. Maybe you think it's stupid. I don't know if this is going to be like a, uh, a, a stupid, you know, social media take versus the, uh, the more experienced professional here, but I think there's a little bit of merit to it. In its no, own I'm not going to suggest way. that it's stupid by any means. I'm not going to su- suggest that it's stupid, and I'm not going to suggest that it will never happen because never is a really long time. What I would suggest, though, is that for the time being, this is your classic that ain't broke, don't fix it situation. Premier League rights fees keep going up and up. The Premier League has no interest right now in carving off the two Manchester clubs, uh, Liverpool, Tottenham, and or Chelsea, and sending them off. Because as you pointed out, now what are you left with? You're left with, God forbid, Arsenal being back at the top. <laughs> Seventh place this season in the Premier League was Burnley. You're going to make them third. Everton were eighth. You're going to make them fourth. Everton were horrible this year. They were sub-500 and finished eighth in the league. I don't think the Premier League wants to see its best magnet 
clubs torn away from the league, even if there's huge revenue that is siphoned back to the league by virtue of them leaving through this uh, convoluted Super League that you have uh, espoused. And by the way, you're not making this up. I know that there's been discussion about this for many, many years. The next question, though, is how do you decide who gets in? Right? Yeah, I don't, like, I don't know. Year on year, you would think Chelsea would be a uh, fairly standard entrant in this situation, but Chelsea finished 10th a couple of years ago. You're going to keep them in it if they finish 10th in, in, in this, or I should say, if they have a terrible season in this Super League you've created, do you kick them out and they can then make them reestablish themselves? There are a lot of moving parts here. And again, the domestic leagues, while they are unbalanced and while they are top heavy and while we see the same teams either winning or being in the top three year on year, see also La Liga, I don't think people are that upset. People are still watching in droves. And you risk, you risk severely damaging these domestic leagues to the point where you crush their value. And then all you're left with is this Super League, which really, if you're going to take the 16 or 24 or however many of the, the best clubs in the world and take them away from the domestic leagues, you've really cheapened their greatness, I would argue, because like, what if you're, for example, Man City and you're taken out of the Premier League and you're put in this we'll call it a 16-team Super League, right? And you finish ninth in the Super League. Everyone's going to say, you guys suck. This thing's a disaster. You're, you're falling apart. Everything needs fixing. Well, you finish ninth among 16 of the best teams in the world. But that's not how it's going to be looked at by supporters groups or boards or the media or anybody. I think there's more to protect by leaving these teams where they are in these domestic leagues and continue to have them pile up silverware within the domestic leagues and have the chance to grab uh, the brass ring in the Champions League or occasionally win domestic cups, whatever, rather than taking these clubs away from their domestic leagues and then making three quarters of them ordinary or worse by having them get crushed by bigger and better clubs in, in the Super League. Let's kind of come back around to the EPL. Um, so we talked about City and their 100-point season, which was you know very exciting for people like you, not as exciting for anyone else. Um, Spurs and Liverpool secured the last two Champions League spots um, behind City and United. Um, really quick, looking forward to next year uh, as a City fan, are you worried at all about United? Uh, I know that like that's a, a very premature thing to ask, and obviously there are going to be changes that the squad's made. But like long term, are we kind of looking at the next three years of, of a top two of the, the uh, two Manchester teams? Do you think that there theoretically should be any movement up there? Or do you think that like the way that these two teams are going to retool, it makes a lot of sense to kind of pencil them in as, as the top two in the league going I forward? Can't wait for to have, I, I can't wait to have our United supporters tape this or save it on their computers and then play this back to me in 10 months. Uh, when United are running away with the league and City are in disarray. But to answer your question, uh, no. The answer is no. Uh, United should be much more concerned about being chased down by Liverpool and or Tottenham and or Chelsea than City should be concerned about being chased down by United. City just beat United by 19 points over the course of a 38-match season. And I've heard a great deal of talk, and we've already mentioned some transfer rumors, and that's great. Man, well, look at United and Spurs and Liverpool. They're going to retool and reload. You think Guardiola is going to sit pat with the same club? He's got more goals himself. It's not just trying to score 100 points or post 100 points uh, 
in the league, look, his Champions League performance the last couple of years has left a lot to be desired. And remember, when they got dumped by Liverpool in the Champions League knockout stage, there were a lot of pundits who said, there goes Guardiola again. Sometimes it's just not good enough. And over a two-leg tie, he can't get it done. Well, Guardiola is going to be going out looking for players that keep him from being in that situation again next season. So it's hard for me to say this because as a City fan, as I've mentioned in prior shows that we've done, City's history is tortured. And, and there was a long time where they were not even in the top flight of English football. And at one point they went two leagues below the top flight of English football. But right now, today, they've won three Premier League titles in seven seasons. They just set a points record in the league. They scored 106 goals. They only gave up 27. They did everything they wanted all season. They had a better goal difference than Tottenham had points finishing third in the league, 79 to 77. So no, I'm not worried about United chasing them down, especially if Mourinho is going to keep managing that side because they can't score enough goals to catch City, not just in the matches they play against City, but across the season. United only scored 68 goals this season. That's not a lot. So no, I'm not worried about United catching City. I am marginally worried about Guardiola over-perfecting things, overthinking things, and fixing what's not broken, to use the same tire cliche. But in the short term, no, not worried. Uh, looking at our, our notes here, Chelsea uh, finished with the draw against Huddersfield Town at Stamford Bridge. And you kind of, I don't know, you're, you're well, wondering... Then they got hammered at Newcastle, so that that's their two finishing so matches, a you're, draw you're and a loss. whether to stick with Conte for the uh, FA Cup final. Explain yourself. Look, even going into the last few matches, Chelsea had an outside sniff at securing Champions League play for next season. Chelsea finished on 70 points. Liverpool ended up finishing on 75, Spurs at 77. A few results in the last month go differently for Chelsea, and they might have been able to back into fourth place in the league. Their performances against Huddersfield Town at Stamford Bridge and then at Newcastle, were not just bad. They were atrocious. They were disinterested. It was a group of players that did not want to be playing together and did not want to be playing for that manager and had no interest in achieving anything, which would be fine if their season ended at Newcastle. But as you've just alluded to, Chelsea have an FA Cup match to play. And while the players and the manager might not care much about it, I can promise you that Chelsea's owner cares about it, and I can promise you Chelsea's supporters group cares about it, and they do not want to end this season with a 3-0 thumping at Newcastle followed by a loss at Wembley to United. That's not going to work. Now, I'm not one to suggest that Conte should not manage them in the FA Cup. I think that's reactionary and knee-jerk. But I'm not the one who came up with the idea. If you Google Conte and FA Cup, you'll find plenty of articles online that suggest that if you're Chelsea's ownership and their board and their football people, have you seen enough in the last week or so, frankly, in the last couple of months, where Chelsea turned in so many blasé, mail-it-in performances that you can't trust Conte to get them up for one more cup final? And if that's the case, maybe you send Conte away and you send a caretaker manager in to guide them through this cup final, and then you've built an excuse if you lose. That's just what's what's out there. I didn't come up with this stuff, but we're talking about it now. 
So uh, really quick, West Brom, Stoke, Swansea all get relegated to the uh, the championship. And uh, the three most recently promoted teams, Huddersfield, Brighton, and Newcastle, all stay up. Questions about Rafa Benitez, if he's going to stay at Newcastle. Um, getting them to finish uh, 10th was impressive, but maybe is something that he would consider beneath him. Um, let's go over, I guess, some managers um, and looking at their their futures with their respective clubs. Um, let's start with Benitez. We've got Allardyce, David Moyes. Uh, where do you want to start? Well, let's start with Benitez. Like, why wouldn't he lobby for the Arsenal job? Right? Yeah, Newcastle's a nice club, and he's done amazing work there, but he's overachieved with them. They finished 10th this season. You would have to bet heavily against them to finish in the top half of the league next year because their ownership situation is still very unsettled, and he can't spend money. Arsenal have not been renowned for spending money, but if Benitez could take the roster he had at Newcastle and make them finish 10th, what could he do with the roster that Wenger underachieved with for the last two or three seasons? I don't think it's out of the question, but Benitez could take that roster and squeeze a fourth place finish out of it. And if he were to do that, Arsenal fan nation would be thrilled. Uh, Benitez would be back at the top of the game in the Premier League. And maybe he could convince the ownership group at Arsenal, probably not, but maybe he could convince Arsenal's ownership to spend a little more money than Wenger was allowed because every time Arsenal's owners gave Wenger money, he messed it up. So that's the Benitez riff. Uh, you mentioned the other, these other managers. I think Allardyce is gone at Everton, even though he didn't do that bad of a job. He got them safely through another season, and they were not particularly good and are not particularly good. But you know, you're Everton in the last five, six years, you've had sniffs of European football. You've been seventh here and eighth there and sixth there. Um, finishing mid-table is not good enough for them. So I think he's going to be gone. And that's that's the way of Allardyce, isn't it? He's there for 18 months, two years, and then he goes somewhere else. Uh, Mark Hughes at Southampton, he got the Saints through quasi-miraculously. Um, I think Hughes deserves to be in that seat at the beginning of next season, but I think it's one of those situations where if Southampton get off to anything close to a slow start, he'll be gone in 10 matches. Um, after that, Moyes at West Ham, same kind of thing as Allardyce. Like, Moyes didn't do that bad a job. We were talking seriously about the possibility of West Ham getting relegated two or three months ago, and West Ham sneaked out with enough points to comfortably get through and get to safety with a bunch of old players and some Man City rejects. But West Ham is not going to be happy with languishing mid to low end of the table and obviously David Moyes is not the sort of manager that you figure is going to bring new ideas and change the culture and turn a mid to low table finish into something much much better without significant expenditures and I don't think West Ham has that kind of money. So while we look at the uh, bottom of the table in the EPL let's kind of look at the flip side of that English championship teams that are going to be coming up uh, we know that Wolverhampton is going to be coming up as is Cardiff uh, your thoughts on the uh, playoffs going on for the final promotion slot. Uh, Aston Villa and Middlesbrough are the uh, the two clubs vying for that final spot. Well, Villa won at Middlesbrough over the weekend, which was a big deal. Among other things, we didn't discuss this, but John Terry is playing in Villa. And he played the other day. And so if they hold this lead through the second leg of this tie at home at Villa Park... Terry's 
said that he's more than willing to come back and play in the Premier League again for Aston Villa, which will probably rub some Chelsea supporters the wrong way. But it would be a hell of a testament to John Terry, who the world gave up for dead when he retired or was sent away from Chelsea. Everybody figured, well, that's the end of him. We'll never see him again. He may just resurface next year. Villa takes an away goal at Middlesbrough and takes it home for the second leg. It's going to be almost impossible for Middlesbrough, who were pretty desolate in the first leg of this tie, to go and flip that result. Of course, I say that in the other semifinal, and we haven't talked about this, but just for our listeners who are not familiar with the English Championship, the top two finishers in the table, which were Wolverhampton and Cardiff City, they were given automatic berths into the Premier League by virtue of their league finish. After that, places three through six end up in a four-team playoff for the last promotion spot, which is a bloodbath, as you can imagine, because all of these clubs want nothing better than to get out of the championship and back up to the Premier League. Fulham were, uh, they finished third in the table in the championship through the course of the regular season. They lost at Derby County 1-0 in the first leg of their two-leg tie. However, today they turned it on its head. They scored twice. Fulham goes through 2-1 on aggregate. So Fulham are in the playoff, the playoff final of the championship in England. They're waiting to see who gets out of the Aston Villa-Middlesbrough side of the draw, if you will. The reason I brought this up, we've never really talked about this. May 26th is the championship final at Wembley. We talk about the FA Cup, and obviously the championship final is not going to hold a candle to the FA Cup, certainly not to a Champions League final. I understand that. But this championship final where the last uh, Premier League spot is up for grabs is one of the most fascinating matches every year only because the amount of money that's at stake. The value of promotion to the Premier League from the championship is just south of 200 million quid. This is no laughing matter. It's annually one of the most lucrative matches in any league anywhere at any time. And some many years, it's the most entertaining and most riveting match because the players are playing really for their professional lives. A lot of these guys have contracts where if they're playing in the Premier League, they make X amount of dollars. And if they're playing in the championship, they're making half of X or a third of X. So there's a desperation and a thrill and an excitement around this championship final that really you probably don't see in many Premier League matches in a given season. So I'm very much looking forward to who gets out of the uh, Aston Villa Middlesbrough uh, draw or tie and who ends up winning this last Premier League spot because that's who we're going to see next season. I just have to say, like, I I think that in a sense, they've kind of blown this. I, I think that this would have been a better match for the 27th. The 26th is going to be the Champions League final. And I think the games are both going on at practically the same time. I want to say that the English championship match happens 45 minutes. The start time is 45 minutes earlier. Um, you know, you should have either done one of two things. Either make it early enough where it's a lead into the Champions League where you've got, you know, eyes from all over the world watching this match. Make it after the Champions League final, which might not work out quite as well, but you have a heck of a lead in. Or have it be on, on Sunday and, like, have it stand alone on its own day. But it's it's not, like, something that I think is going to catch the casual fan, but it certainly is something that I think they're kind of missing out on an opportunity for. I know I certainly am not going to go out of my way to pull myself away from the Champions League final to go turn this match on, um, even though 
to your point, it is a very lucrative uh, match and, and a very important one for both of these teams. Um, really quick before we uh, kind of come stateside, there was one interesting thing that happened in the Bundesliga um, that, that is worth discussing. Um, obviously, Bayern Munich won the, the, the crown. Um, that was something that we knew was going to happen. Schalke finished second in the Bundesliga. But third, fourth, and fifth, um, all teams finished on the same amount of points. Hoffenheim ended up making the Champions League for the first time ever. Um, they finished third in the Bundesliga. Borussia Dortmund ends up um, edging out Bayer Leverkusen by a goal differential. So uh, even though um, Dortmund lost 3-1 and Bayer Leverkusen won uh, 3 uh, what was it? Their match was uh, a 3-2 victory over Hanover. Bayer Leverkusen gets gets knocked out of uh, Champions League contention uh, or of an automatic bid for next season just by virtue of goal differential, which I thought was interesting. I mean, we talk about how these leagues were more or less a runaway, especially the Bundesliga. You can pretty much pencil in or even write in pen that Bayern Munich is going to win it, as you can with Juventus and and um, PSG in their respective leagues. But this third, fourth, and fifth place battle came down to the wire, and goal differential is the... Uh, the thing that that breaks the, uh, I, I don't know what, what's the word I'm looking for. The deadlock. Yeah, it breaks the deadlock and it it sends two of these clubs through and and a third club. You know, you want to talk about lucrative deals and and um, you know sponsorship and and international acclaim and international visibility. Um, you know, Bayer Leverkusen is is left on the outside looking in, and um, you know, if nothing else, I guess you know, good for Hoffenheim making it for the first time. Dortmund, man, for for a team that you know, a couple of years ago was looking like they were young and poised to kind of take on an aging Bayern Munich team for them to finish fourth um, based on where they were for most of the season in the Bundesliga. I think they've kind of limped across and their best player or ostensibly their best player, Marco Royce um, seems very upset with the direction of the club is calling for massive changes at Dortmund. So that's, that's kind of something to maybe keep an eye on going forward into next season. That was a minor miracle that Dortmund finished in the top four in that league. Yep. I mean, obviously, it was goal difference that got them there. They were languishing for most of the season. They weren't particularly good. I agree with everything you've said. And remember, as a City fan, a Man City fan, uh, the first of these three titles that City won in the last seven years was a goal difference title. So you'll never uh, shake me from the belief that goal difference, goal difference matters. It absolutely matters. I am a little surprised that your lead story with reference to the Bundesliga was, was the top of the table and not the bottom. Because the 17th ranked, 17th placed team in the Bundesliga next year was Hamburg this season, I should say. Yeah, we, yeah, we have to. Relegated for the first time in 55 seasons from yeah. the Bundesliga. That is something. Um, you want to talk about recriminations and regrets and just unbelievable. Again, I haven't been following uh, world football forever, but I've followed it long enough. Hamburg was one of the first clubs that a name that I would recognize from Germany. Even you know it was Bayern, but it was also Hamburg. It was also Wolfsburg, who were also terrible this year. But to see Hamburg get relegated for the first time in fifty-five seasons, you just don't know what that means for that club and where it's going to lead, do you? No, I mean, look, I I have to just say this really quickly. I know that I overcorrect on pronunciations, but if I hear Hamburg, I think of Cabela's uh, in like central. 
central-ish Pennsylvania. I'm sorry, you went on Amberg? The, on, the border, on the border between like Berks and Schuylkill County. So every time you say Hamburg, I'm just expecting. They have a nice diner. That's, that's the thing. Me. Really good double cheeseburgers. Uh, they put the extra slice of bread in the middle. Got to love that. Got to love the, uh, the old-time diners. Um, well, let's hear you say yeah, it then. Yeah, Hamburg. 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 Yeah. All right, I'll do my best. Hamburg. I hate Hamburg. I, so um, for anybody who's ever been to Germany... Uh, I guess it, it really is a stylistic difference here, but um, Berlin is like the place to go. A lot of people who are German purists don't necessarily like Berlin as much because they, they think that it's trying to be too progressive, too modern. Um, but I, that to me is the best city in the world. If I were given a, a job opportunity to uh, to move the family to Berlin, I'd, I'd probably take it in just about a heartbeat. I love that city. It's incredible. And we went on a weekend excursion to Hamburg when I was in college and um, it just didn't do it for me. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's the fact that now I like seafood, but I don't like the smell of like dead and dying fish. And that was what you're greeted with as soon as you get there. I don't know if it's because it was just so hipstery about, oh, look, we have trees everywhere. Yeah. Would you like, would you like to look at our, at our boimer? Look at this beautiful tree over here. And here we have some Vasa and there is, um, there's this really nice, um, uh, uh, park for all of the boats to get together and to put all of the containers onto other ships. I'm like, this isn't fun at all. There's nothing interesting about this. The only thing that I will say that Hamburg has going for it that is really awesome is because they have such a push towards being this environmental city and being like a sustainable and, and environmentally conscious place. They've got this beautiful park where they do public viewing during the World Cup. And if anybody listening is happening to uh, head to Germany, I would, of course, lead you to, to go to the Fan Mile in, in Berlin. But if you can't get there, and for some reason you're in Hamburg, they have a beautiful park where they do public viewing. And I remember going and watching, was it Germany and Australia in 2010? It was definitely Australia was playing. And we were watching that that match. And... The way that they had it set up, I don't know if you've ever, have you ever been out of the country during the World Cup and experienced public viewing? That's a no. Okay. So the way that they set this park up was on your way in, they had a tent that represented every country in that World Cup. That was the South Africa Vuvuzela catastrophe World Cup. And they had a, a large tent for every country that was in. So that was people that were from those countries were running tents. They were selling food that was traditional to that region or to that to that nation uh the colors the music it was essentially like epcot on steroids so like when people go to epcot they're like oh my god look at look at this look at this nice man he's speaking german to me oh my gosh well it's like that but but times however many teams are in the world cup what 30 ish 60 i forget i should know um but it's 32 it, now to be 48 next time. But it's like, imagine that on roids. I mean, it, it was incredible. Like you can go over, go over to like the Ghana tent and get like food you've never had before and then go jam out with the Italians, have some wine, then wander off to France and like hate everybody and eat a snail. Go back to like go to Spain, get some Iberico ham and like move on with your life. It was amazing. And, and that to me. If you are listening to this podcast and you like international soccer, international football, whatever you want to call it, and you've never been out of the country to experience the World Cup, you need to. It, it is a, a life-changing event, and to be around a, a few thousand people that are just there for the game, uh, not even rooting for their home nation, just going out to watch a couple of, of uh, 
of teams with a few thousand people. It's an incredible experience, and it's something that you know there I've I've never had that experience replicated. Your description was vivid. I enjoyed it greatly. I just cannot believe that you made our listeners wait almost an hour to break out your German accent. This has to be an ongoing segment next season when Bundesliga returns. We have to do Bundesliga Minute with Russ, and you recite the results of the week and its implications on the Bundesliga table in that accent because I need more of that. Okay. I'll inject that into uh, into our script for next season. Make it happen. It'll be good. Um, okay, so Bundesliga... Um, very interesting end here. The Hamburg thing is is upsetting to a to an extent, um, just because the the image of we were we were celebrating my dad's birthday um, when that was happening, and my son, my three year old, almost three year old, um, loves watching soccer and he loves when they score goals. And we say, buddy, hey, what happens when they score a goal? They hug. Everybody runs to the corner. They hug. It's great. And for him to like look up and say, Daddy, why is there a fire? And it's because the Hamburg fans were so upset that they were, you know, throwing um, flares and such towards the field. And then you have just these long lines of police and security holding the players onto the field because, you know, this supporter section is just so upset that they're getting relegated. I know that it it has to be terrible to get your team relegated. I know that for the first time uh, for it to ever happen in 55 years or whatever, like I know that that is life changing. I know that that's terrible for a club, but you you can't do that. And it's something that Italian fans often get dinged for and something that, that, you know, people like to get on Serie A teams about in their supporter sections. But the idea of flares in the stands and then using them and essentially causing fires on the pitch because you're upset, there are better ways to do it. There are better ways to show that you're upset. And to me, that's that's a lasting image. That is a club-shifting, club-altering uh, kind of image that could stain... Hamburg for the next couple of years, or at least until they're able to get themselves back up to the Bundesliga. I just think it's a it's a terrible look for their fans, and they should do better. Well, first off, how do you explain to your beautiful son the idea, the concept of an ultras, right? Because yeah. that's what this is. And ultras exist in many leagues, certainly in Serie A, certainly in Bundesliga, less so in the Prem. But the Prem has its own problems with idiot fans still throwing bananas at African players or players of color. So none of these leagues are blameless by any means. It really is, though, a very small subsection of morons and idiots and dolts and people who don't have much more to do with their lives than identify with their club that create these problems. It's not 30,000 Amborg supporters doing this. It's like 500 or 300. It'd be like if the Sons of Bennett and Union match went crazy. There's a few of them. There's enough of them to cause a problem, but there's, there's not enough to overtake the sane, sensible people in the building. Yeah. So I, I think ultimately you can explain to your son that the world's an imperfect place and people make bad decisions, but this isn't the way it is, and it won't stay this way either. Um, real quick, before we go, uh, the the big rumor, the big signing that has been made, uh, DC United is paying what is it, a 12 million pound transfer fee to acquire Wayne Rooney. Um, so DC United... Hopefully. Hopefully. It's, it's gonna not happen. confirmed, so but I'm really hoping DC so. United, who's sitting on five points as of recording, um, if if you haven't seen the Taylor Twelman rant, um, kind of it chast- was awesome. chastising this move... It was so to, great. To an extent, it's incredible. I mean, you want to talk about like inject that into my veins. That 
the rant that he had about you know this team this is a, a team that in the front office they have people playing multiple roles guys that haven't been paid uh men and women doing their jobs at you know a lower rate than they should be uh an academy system that had been touted and and one that seems to be in disarray at this point um the fact that that there have been so many empty seats at matches it just seems like a massively dysfunctional franchise now this team that doesn't spend money is going to go out and you know blow all this money on wayne rooney who like rooney should find success in mls i mean i i I know that he's very clearly past his prime, but he's not total trash. I would have to think that he's going to come in and, and, you know, be an immediate impact player for DC United. Certainly should, hopefully for them, get them out of the basement. It doesn't do a lot of good if you're like a Philadelphia Union fan, because now you look at it and you say, well, here's another team that, you know, if you're a fan, you're like, wow, that's a massive transfer fee that our team, you know, certainly would never pay or would never be able to pay. And now you've got another face of a franchise, you know, whether it's the right thing or not for DC United moving forward remains to be seen. But if you're looking to market the game, uh, people know who Wayne Rooney is. The the younger generation that's all about, you know, knowing the player, not necessarily having allegiance to an international club. Uh, they know who Wayne Rooney is. And that is certainly going to put butts in seats. It's certainly going to be able to get casual fans who have kids who play FIFA, who know who Wayne Rooney is out to the matches so, you know, I think in in some ways it's a very smart move for them, but I don't really know if it's going to change all that much on the on the field. It's it's certainly not going to like catapult them to the top 4 or top 5 in the Eastern Conference. They're just nowhere close on talent. As always you bury the lead too. Like for me as a Union supporter, anything that DC United pays to get Rooney on their squad is worth it to me because when he comes to Philadelphia, I get to chant he's bald, he's red, he'll take your grand to bed. Like that for me is worth all the money that DC United paid and then some, especially when you consider that Wayne Rooney has been playing in temperate climates for like the last 20 years and he still is the ruddiest son of a gun you ever saw. Now watch him play in the swamp heat in DC for a season and have you ever been to Talent Energy in August? That ain't no picnic neither. I cannot wait for Wayne Rooney to come to Philadelphia. That'll be so much fun. It'll be so enjoyable. My seats won't be good enough where there's any possibility he'll come into the stands to get me. So I really have pretty much a free reign to say what I want. That might be a match where I actually buy a Sons of Ben ticket on StubHub and really have fun. I think that to, might be a good game. Like anybody who's in our area, in uh, in the tri-state area or so, and would like to go, maybe that'll be a thing we do, Phil. Maybe we'll get some of these diehard listeners to the podcast out. We'll, I like it. And we'll, I like we'll it. We'll go do a, a DC United... Philadelphia Union match at Talent Energy Stadium. Oh, hell, I'll go down there. I don't care. I don't care. I'll go down there wherever they're playing these days. I did make the point to you uh, before we went on. I watched Gerard, Stephen Gerard, play against the Union a couple of seasons ago, and it was pathetic. He was essentially walking most of the time. And Frank Lampard, a Chelsea legend, came to Man City and was decent for like 12 to 14 months and then went to NYCFC. Wasn't great there. Rooney's fitness has always been in question. Recently, it's been more in question, as I just indicated. Now he's going to be playing in a much hotter, more humid climate with lesser players, with less at stake. You have to know that Wayne Rooney is looking at this as a significant step down. I mean, like the move down from Man United to Everton was fairly precipitous, but he was still in the Premier League and he had ties to that part of the world. And so it made some sense for him now to effectively give up on any further usefulness in the Prem to come to MLS and play 
for a bottom-dwelling DC United club whose many problems behind the scenes you have already documented, which are all very real, I can't imagine Rooney is going to invest himself physically, spiritually, or emotionally for his time here in DC. So get him while you can, because I don't think it's going to last for a long time. Speaking of things that didn't last for a long time, Zlatan Ibrahimovic's goal-scoring uh, goal streak in MLS, um, he was making a big impact early on. We knew that he was going to be a you know an excellent player for them, an excellent acquisition, but they've now lost four straight, have LA Galaxy, and uh, Zlatan has been uh, calling out his teammates' performance. This is something that I think we knew was going to happen. Um, well, it remains to be seen how things are going to continue to go over. And I have to imagine that for a guy who had never lost four straight domestic league matches in his career in a row, um, this is certainly going to, uh, to burn his bridges. So we'll have to going to have to kind of see how this uh, continues to play out. Uh, I guess the last thing, um, Bruce arena was uh, asked about, um, was this in his book? This thing that you have in our notes here, Bruce arena talking about the uh, failure to qualify. I think I thought I saw this as an excerpt from his book. I'm not positive if, if this is where you got it from. I believe it was. And either way, whether it was a quote he gave to a reporter or whether it was directed uh, or taken straight from his book, the quote is, in all honesty, I think if I had come in April, it would have been a heck of a lot easier for us to qualify for a World Cup. That's what Arena is still talking about and still trotting out there. Go ahead, Russ. Tell me what you think because I'm really upset. Dear Bruce Arena, as Stewie Griffin once said, Go away, fat man. That's what I would say to Bruce Arena. Just walk away. And for real. You lost, like, you blew it. You came in here as a a pompous, arrogant jerk. You didn't do too much to change the squad. You acted like Jurgen Klinsmann had driven this team into the ground as if they had underperformed with him in control and that you, just by the grace of God, were going to be placed in as manager and and miraculously this team was just going to turn it around because Klinsmann didn't know how to utilize these guys the way that you know good old Bruce did. Well, guess what, Bruce? You blew it. And not only did you blow it, but your team of, you know, overprivileged, whiny, wimpy, you know, Michael Bradley-led guys who were making fun of the Trinidad and Tobago uh, pitch ended up going out and kind of laid an egg there. And you... Kind of. And, like, you as this, you know, fantastic manager, the greatest all-time U.S. men's national team manager, you know, who's just great at managing players and their egos and getting the best out of them. You really did a heck of a number there, Bruce. I'm really looking forward to uh, the U.S. men's national team's next uh, World Cup match. When When is that, Phil? Maybe 2024? Hashtag, or no, yeah, no, 2022. Hashtag, thanks, Bruce. Let's hope. It might actually be 2024 in fairness, because you never know. Qatar, like what what could happen? (laughs) That's that's absolutely fair. I mean, in fairness, things have happened. The air air conditioning could break. They push it to the winter. Then they decide that the air conditioning's not right. You you get the point. And for the longest time, the Olympics ran on strict four-year cycles, and then they made the decision to stagger them. So, yeah, that's not out of the question. I can't disagree with what you just said there. Bruce Arena. (laughs) <laughs> what was his signature moment as the manager of the United States men's national team in this most recent tenure that ended in such a huge failure? And they won one of the matches like 4-0, I think. But all anyone will ever remember, all anyone can ever remember, is the fact that needing a draw at Trinidad and Tobago, the bottom CONCACAF side, and as you pointed out, complaining about the wetness of the pitch and how much it had rained before the match and all that stuff. 
the only player who turned up in that match was Pulisic, somebody who really had no history with Arena and wanted it more than anybody else, including your boy Bradley and Altidore and even Tim Howard, who let in a very soft goal in that match, which ended up being a huge difference maker. I don't want to hear from Bruce Arena again ever, ever. I I want to hear from Klinsman more than I want to hear from Arena. And meanwhile, you know, don't you, we still don't have anything approaching a plan or a future or a path to success for this men's national team. It's been months since they flamed out of the World Cup qualifying, and I'll be damned if I can tell what they think they're going to do to make it better. It doesn't look like there's any plan at all. Nope. And uh, let's be honest, nobody's surprised. So while we don't want to hear from Bruce Arena, we do want to hear from you, the listener. And it just so happens, Phil, that we have a new five-star review on iTunes. Hit me. Hit me with it. uh, This is by W. Rooney. Oh, my God, Wayne Rooney. (laughs) Wayne Rooney, you've left us a nice review. Everton lets me down, but this pod sure doesn't. Five stars. Great show. Phil's soccer takes are way better than his Brett Brown takes. There you go, Phil. Little cross sports. Seems to be a recurring theme uh, with uh, my Brett Brown takes not being as good as my soccer takes. Uh, all I know is uh, the Sixers got blasted in that series. They got their pants taken down. They got abused. Uh, the coach didn't make adjustments. And listen, if you want Brett Brown, you can have him. I don't want him. All right, and on that, I guess that's probably about as good a time as ever for us to uh, end this episode of Crossing Broad FC part of the crossing broad podcast network don't forget to go check out if you are a philadelphia sports fan go check out crossing broadcast with me and kyle scott uh the show crossed up a phillies podcast with uh, bob and anthony snow the goalie with me and anthony uh where we talk about the uh, philadelphia flyers we we'll, should be hopefully having uh, a very special guest coming up in the next week or so during the off season and of course it's always soccer in philadelphia with kevin kincaid uh that show covers your team, your town, your Philadelphia Union, and topics in MLS specifically. So uh, make sure you go check out those podcasts. And, of course, leave a five-star review on this one. Make sure you tell at least five friends. That's your homework for the week, ladies and gentlemen. Go tell five friends who you know like international football or want to get more knowledgeable uh, about it and push them in the way of Crossing Broad FC. Leave a five-star review on iTunes or Stitcher. And, uh, of course, always available iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and uh, pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. For Phil, I'm Russ. We'll talk to you again next week.